Larry always complains about uh, the First Baptist Church in wherever, Missouri, uh, only singing the first and the third verse. We sing the first, the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, then the first again sometimes, and sometimes the fifth again sometimes. <clears throat> We're flexible around here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is eternal in the heavens. It gives us instruction in every area of our life. And in this matter of how to handle our money, your word has much to say. And so help us today to listen carefully to your word, to think about what you say, and to act in accordance with your word in obedience. And so, Father, give me a clear voice and people clear ears to hear your word and to bring you the honor and the glory and the worship that's due to your name. We thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. So here at McKinney Bible Church, we don't often talk about money. We don't have a big fundraising drive. We don't have a big thermometer showing the giving and all those kind of gimmicks. And this message isn't in response to um, a building drive or any particular, particular need of more money either. This is just a message that is something that uh, is uh, very applicable to every aspect of our life. And some preachers, they always talk about money. And they talk about it in the way that says, you people shouldn't have it, give it to me and then God will bless you as a result of that. As a result of that kind of a pendulum swing, if you will, the other side says, I'm never gonna talk about money because I don't wanna be accused of being one of those prosperity preachers. And so again, this is not a message that's on either side of that pendulum swing. This is talking about our finances, it's not even directly talking about giving and depending on how much time it takes to get through the material, we may not even get to the giving section. I heard a preacher one time say, don't be looking at your watches because I have one up here and I'm not looking at mine, so don't worry about it. <clears throat> when Jesus was on the earth, he had many things to say about money and depending on how you count and depending on who's doing the counting, over 50% of the parables deal with money in one fashion or another. And besides the parables, there's lots of scriptures, as we'll see. The Proverbs is full of how to deal with money and many of the other uh, parts of scripture as well. So don't go trying to count all the parables right now. You can assign that to one of your homeschooled children to go through the scripture and count them up uh, sometime later this week or something. But besides Jesus' parables, many, many places in the scripture talk about money and how to use it. And the reason is because money is another one of those topics that causes us uh, concern. It causes attention. Yeah. In engineering, you talk about engineering trade-offs. There's never a great answer. You, you have to pick X. If you pick X, there's going to be some problems. If you pick Y, there's some pluses and some minuses. Money is kind of like that. 
and the way the scripture presents the, the topic of how to handle money, there's a tension. And that tension is something that we should all feel. From a biblical um, framework, all of us in this room are wealthy. You think of the many scriptures that talk about give us this day our daily bread. Most of us don't think like that because we have a freezer full of food. So each of us is wealthy. Some have more wealth than others, but this topic will affect each of us. And money is one of those topics that um, affected me while I was working. While I was working, I was thinking about money. How does God want me to handle it? When I started thinking about retirement, I started thinking, well, okay, now I'm moving into another phase of life. How does that affect the way that I, I view money? And then now that I'm in retirement, same kind of thing. I'm thinking, okay, how do I use the resources that God has given me? And the way that a question or a topic is framed often exposes the desired answer that the questioner presents. It's true in surveys, debates, and even theological discussions. Some people are very good at asking a question in a certain way to get a response. Just a, a, a uh, kind of humorous example is you're talking to a guy and you say, when did you stop beating your wife? Well, what kind of answer does a guy give in that? When a survey question comes up, the, the survey question predicates the answer almost. Uh, this week we voted on a, a bond proposal. And Alan, I think McKinney had that same bond proposal. Um, but I was talking to two of the candidates running for city council and I said, you know, the choice you give us on the ballot is raise taxes or raise taxes. And the two of them started laughing. And they said, we need you on the school board. I said, you know, where's the third option? There's no third option of just living within your, the means that you have. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. So with respect to our subject, the question is often asked, how much should I give to the church or to God? And that's the wrong question, and it always yields the wrong answer. Some would say we're still under the law, so the answer they would give is 10%. I think we get closer to the biblical response or answer when we ask something like, how much of God's resources or money do I really need to use for myself? And that's a key difference. Sometimes we say, gee, I wish God just gave me a formula or gave me something specific so that I could follow it. And in a sense, that's a legalistic approach at things, just like the scribes and Pharisees. And Jesus... Um, kind of got on their case. He said, you know, you tithe mint and cumin, little tiny seeds. You meticulously go through and count out 10 seeds and give one of them to God. But he says you neglected the weightier matters. So we need to be careful. And then often, often, when God does tell us something specific, we balk at it. And we say, gee, we don't want to do that either. So we have excuse for everything, don't we? <coughs> If we think about the 10% for a minute, 
some of us would like to say, you know, God says give 10%, and so I can give my 10%, and then I can have a clear conscience. I just write my check out for 10%, and I'm done. And for some people, that may be difficult to do. Other people, the answer would be, maybe I really shouldn't be keeping 90% of that money. So again, how we frame the question determines the answer. If we think about giving 10%, that means 90% I'm keeping. So you may turn around and say, well, God says that he gives us richly all things to enjoy. And that is true. The scripture does say that. In Titus chapter 6, verse 17, the scripture says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us all things richly to enjoy. So the command to the rich, don't trust in uncertain riches. Instead, trust in the living God. And yes, God does give us richly all things to enjoy, but we'll see how that works out. <coughs> and some people are thinking, look, my finances are such that I can't even give 10%. I can't, I can't see how I could possibly do that. I'd read Forrest Malachi chapter 3, and I do hope that you listen carefully as Hyde reads the scriptures, because oftentimes they are, uh, are very integral to what we're going to be talking about. In, in Malachi chapter 3, God says, you've robbed me. In what way? In your tithes and offerings. We've stolen from God. And he says, Try me now in this and see if I'll not pour out blessings. Try what? Try doing what God says and then see how God blesses. So let's take a look at various scriptures and see what it says about money and how to determine how we should handle the money that he's given us. The first, very first commandment says that we should have no other gods before him. That's in Exodus chapter 20. And then Jesus says that we cannot serve God and money or mammon because we will either hate the one and love the other or else we'll be loyal to one and despise the other. And that comes up in two places, in Luke 16 and Matthew chapter 6. And we know that our very life depends on God and so does our ability to make money. God can take that away at any time. I think each of us has seen that, that's lived any length of time that... Uh, a man can be reduced to, um, to nothing. We think of a, a little virus, a little bug, and uh, it can knock a guy down on his knees. So at any time, God could take away our ability to even make money. <clears throat> money is important to life in general. It affects both believers and unbelievers. As we will see, believers need to handle money differently than unbelievers. And in fact, the way a person handles their finances is a very good indicator of their relationship to Jesus Christ. It's been said back in the day when checkbooks were more uh, in vogue than they are now, it's been said if you look at a person's checkbook register, you could determine their relationship with Jesus Christ because you can see how they're spending their money. <coughs> <coughs> God created everything that we see on the earth. Everything is his, and he graciously lends us all things. And we're to be a steward 
of his possessions. This includes our very life, our breath, our talents, and our resources. That's our money. <clears throat> Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord, the Lord's, and all its fullness, the world and all those who dwell in it. That's something to think about. Everything is the Lord's, and everything that dwells in the earth is the Lord's. The sooner that we grasp that we really don't own anything and that everything we have belongs to God, the better off we will be. And then we will understand that God is giving us, has given us everything, and he's asking us to give back what he already owns. He lends it to us in a sense, so it should be easy to give it back. But in practice, it's not so easy. And as a result of our sinful nature, we tend to steal from God, like Malachi said, and to keep too much for ourselves. <clears throat> if we think of a couple of examples from the Bible, we see a very important principle that I like to call instant gratification or deferred gratification. Instant gratification or deferred gratification. Adam and Eve in the garden, they wanted instant gratification. Satan said, look at this tree, it's good to give you knowledge and to be like God. And so Adam grabbed that fruit and took it right away. Whereas God says in many places that we will be like him when we see him in eternity. So Adam wanted instant gratification. God says, you wait. Deferred gratification. If you think about David, <clears throat> David's a man on the other side. God anointed him king, and for years and years and years, he was being pursued by Saul. He had two or three opportunities to kill Saul, and he didn't do it. Why? Because he understood that the time wasn't right. It was something he rightfully had, in a sense. He was, he was anointed king, and yet in practice, he wasn't there yet. He was willing to wait upon God, so the principle of deferred gratification came into play in David's mind. And his men said, Saul's on the ground, one strike, I could kill him. And David said, nope, we'll wait upon God's timing. And God blessed him for that. And of course, our ultimate example is Jesus Christ. <clears throat> when the devil tried to tempt uh, Jesus in the wilderness, he was hungry. So Satan said, make these stones into bread. And Satan said, bow down and worship me. And then I'll give you all the authority now. In the last temptation, Satan said, since God said that the angels will protect you, do something dumb. Jump off of this cliff and let's see if God protects you. In each case, Satan said, you deserve this. Instant gratification, Jesus. I'll give it to you. And Jesus backed off and said, nope. Deferred gratification. I'll wait upon God. And God provided all those things for Jesus, didn't he? So as we think about that in our lives, think about it in just a couple of very obvious kind of situations. A child, a young child, wants to do something that even may be a good thing, but they aren't ready. 
I always liked having my children in the kitchen with me, and they all like to cook now. But one of the things that uh, I, I didn't let them do until they were old enough, or some would say they were too young to do that, but I figured they were ready, <laughs> is to handle sharp knives. You know, when they were too young, I said, nope, that's not something you can do right now. But later on, you could. Um, a young child starts to get to that age, they want to drive, and yet there's a time when they can drive. Instant gratification, deferred gratification. Sex is something that God made to be kept in, in the marriage confines, and yet a child wants to have sex before marriage, even adults. And God says, no deferred gratification. We can take that principle throughout all the scripture, and money is no exception to that. A couple of examples that you might uh, observe uh, in the area of money is that uh, we want something right now. So rather than saving up for it, we go into debt. That's a problem. We want instant gratification. A young couple gets married, their parents have been saving for 30 years or 40 years, and the young couple says, my parents have this, I ought to be able to get this. So what am I gonna do? I'm gonna go into debt to get this. Well, instant gratification. It gets us in trouble every time. We're not content with what we have, so we go into debt. But the ultimate example is one that we fail to see is that eternal treasures and eternal rewards are far more valuable than the earthly treasures and the earthly rewards. The earthly treasures would represent instant gratification in this case, and the heavenly treasures are deferred gratification. Which is better, to have little things here on earth or to have eternal rewards? So this concept is a very important one. Please turn to Matthew chapter 6. And Hyde read this for us, <clears throat> but I want us to spend a little time talking about it. I'm going to go ahead and, and reread it because I want to expand the section and, and talk about uh, the other parts that I did not read. So in Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 19, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, if your eye is whole or single or good, some translations say, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, 
nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you of not more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? <coughs> so why do you worry about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow was thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is the trouble thereof. A couple of observations to make on this text. <coughs> we are told to store up our treasures in heaven and not on earth. If we store them on earth, they can easily be lost. But when one stores up treasures in heaven, those ones can't be lost. You don't need to have a CPA degree or a financial planning background to understand the concept of what Jesus is teaching. We talk about safe investments. Storing up on earth is not only risky, it doesn't make any sense. It's not a safe investment. It will not endure, it will not last, and in the end, it'll be of no value to us. When we store up our treasures in heaven, they will benefit us throughout the rest of eternity. And that is sound, long-term investing. If our eye is bad, we won't look for the long-term investment. We will squander God's good gifts to us on ourselves, and we will forfeit eternal blessings. <clears throat> the section that I read has three sections. In a sense, God says that we need to have a single treasure, a single eye. Some translations call it a single eye, a good eye, rather than an evil eye. And then we can't serve two masters. We can only serve one master. Proverbs 28:22 says, A man with an evil or a bad eye hastens after riches and does not consider that poverty will come to him. But then Proverbs 22, verse 9 says, He who has a good or a generous eye will be a blessing, for he gives of his bread to the poor. So then, we will be serving money rather than God if we store up our treasures on the earth. And the consequence of doing this is that we will have a life full of worry, anxiety, and depression. Worry and anxiety because we're worried about what's going to happen to our earthly treasures. Depression because we're not doing what God wants us to do with the resources that he gives us. That's a consequence of not handling our money correctly. And if you look around at the world in general, 
but then not only the world in general, but in the church, you find that people are on all kinds of medications because of a couple of reasons, and a couple of those reasons are worry, anxiety, and depression. <coughs> Please turn to Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12, Luke records a parable that Jesus taught about the rich fool. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So most likely this was the younger brother. The older brother had the inheritance and he would do the dividing. So the younger brother is coming and saying, Hey, Jesus, uh, do me a favor. Speak good to me to my brother. But Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns and build greater and I will store up my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, or one that doesn't think, is another translation. This night your soul will be required of you. Then who, whose will those things be for which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. <clears throat> so it's interesting. The parable talks about this, this rich fool whose ground yielded plentifully. Now if you know anything about gardening, you can do all the good work. You can prepare the ground. You can plant seeds at the proper time. You can even try to water it. But if you think about a plot of ground that's big enough that you can't water it, who is it that has to give the rain? God does. Who's the one that gives the increase? God does. Who's the one that causes the weather to be right for the crops to grow? God does. So this rich fool, he planted and his crops produced a bumper crop. And instead of thanking God, for the blessing, he says, hey, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to build a bigger barn. I'm going to store more crops so that I'll have plenty and then I can sit back and relax. Most of us in the room, unless you're a farmer, don't think that way. We don't think about having a, a bigger barn to keep more corn or, or whatever it is that we grew. But in Jesus' day, they didn't have 401ks, IRAs, stocks and bonds, or any of those types of investments. <coughs> so if you had a, a bumper crop, you'd build bigger barns. What do we do? We, gild, we build bigger bank accounts. We build 401ks. We build IRAs and stocks and so forth. 
But listen to the words that Jesus ends the parable with. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be, will be required of you. Then whose will those things be that you have provided? So you build up this big stockpile of money, and your kids may enjoy it because they say, hey, go ahead, Dad, build bigger IRAs and stocks and bonds, and when you die, I'm going to get it. Well, your dad may trick you and not give you that. <coughs> but the point that Jesus makes is, is a, an important one that we need to listen to carefully. What is our motive behind what we're doing? When we're storing up these things, are we storing up these things so that we could sit back and say, oh, soul, eat, drink, and be merry? God says, you fool. I'm going to require your life tonight. Down a little further in chapter 12, in Luke chapter 12, verse 33, Jesus says, sell what you have and give alms. Provide for yourself money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that will not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys, and for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's the key. <clears throat> is your treasure on the earth? If so, your heart's going to be there. If it's in heaven, your heart's going to be there. So the love of money causes us to not handle our finances correctly, and as a result, we steal with, from God. The words of Malachi chapter 3. We don't want to be the one stealing from God. That's not a good thing to do. So there's a whole pile of Proverbs, <clears throat> and I'm just going to read through them. You can try to follow along, or if you want to take notes, just write down the, the verse, and uh, I'm going to make little comments on it, but the Proverbs are, are set in the scripture as little pithy statements, and oftentimes there is no comment required. This way I don't get in trouble. I can just let God do the speaking, right? <clears throat> so the first category is work hard and don't be lazy. And this is a big category. If you, as you read through the Psalms, many, many places we're told to work hard. And if you work hard, we're going to be rewarded. So hard work is not something that's bad. And being rewarded for that hard work Acquiring more resources is not bad. But then we'll see that there's things that we need to do with that. So Proverbs chapter 6, verse 6 through verse 11. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come upon you like a vagabond, one that walks around, or some other versions say prowler, and your need like an armed man. So don't be lazy, work hard. <clears throat> he who has a slack hand, I'm sorry, Proverbs 10, verses 4 through 5. He who has a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a wise son. He who sleeps in the harvest 
is a son who, son who causes shame. So in the agricultural scheme, you work hard you, you, in the harvest time. Uh, I'm sorry. When you're gathering in the summer, you're a wise person. And if you're sleeping in the harvest time, you're going to cause shame because you're not going to get the crops. Proverbs 12, verse 11. He who tills his land will be satisfied with bread, but he who follows frivolity is devoid of understanding. <clears throat> Proverbs 13, verse 4. The soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. The contrast between the lazy and the diligent. Proverbs 13, verse 7. There is one who makes himself rich, yet has nothing, and one who makes himself poor and has great riches. Remember that Jesus is the one who had all riches in eternity, and he made himself poor for us. Proverbs 14, 23. This is a verse that I think ought to be in every uh, meeting room and every corporation. In all labor there is profit, but idle chatter leads only to poverty. Stop talking, get to work. <clears throat> Proverbs 19, verse 15 through 17. Laziness casts ones into a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. He who keeps the commandment keeps his soul, but he who is careless of his ways will die. He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will pay back what he has given. Proverbs 20, verse 4. The lazy man will not plow because of the winter. He will beg during the harvest and have nothing. Proverbs 21, verse 25 through 26. The desire of the lazy man kills him. For his hands refuse to labor. He covets greedily all day long, but the righteous gives and does not spare. So the lazy man, he still covets, he still wants to have, but he can't because he's been lazy. <coughs> Proverbs 24, verse 30 through 34. I went by the field of a lazy man and by the vineyard of a man devoid of understanding, and there it was, all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. When I saw it, I considered it well. I looked on it and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and so shall your poverty come upon you like a vagabond, and your need like an armed man. <coughs> And no, I didn't stutter. That's twice in the, in the Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 6 and here in Proverbs chapter 24. So we need to think about it. We need to hear what it says. Stop sleeping. Get up. Don't be lazy. Proverbs 28, 19. He who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows frivolity will have poverty enough. That's repeated also. And then Proverbs 31. The virtuous wife, we're not going to read that all, but what does a virtuous wife do? She works hard. She provides for her family, her friends, and for the poor. God commends her because she does this. She makes investments, and they yield an increase. <clears throat> so the idea that 
we, um, that we shouldn't be rich, we shouldn't have much, is not a biblical concept. The question is, what do we do with it? Second Thessalonians says, for even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if a man will not work, neither shall he eat. God provided throughout, for the poor throughout all the, the Old Testament, you see many times where God says, don't glean, I mean, don't harvest the corners of your field. Leave that for the gleaning of the poor people. So it doesn't say that you had to pick the grain or pick all your crops and give them to the poor. The poor had to do something for it. But God provided in that way. So don't be lazy, work hard, and God will provide. <clears throat> the next category would be don't trust in riches. So Proverbs 11, verse 28 says, He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage. Proverbs 21, 17 says, He who loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. Don't look for all the luxuries, because then you will not be rich. Proverbs 23, 4 and 5, Do not overwork to be rich, because of your own understanding, cease. Will you set your eyes on that which is not? <clears throat> for riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle towards heaven. The more money you have, the more it seems to find a use for it and it flies away. Then don't borrow. Proverbs 22, 17 says, the rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is a servant to the lender. Don't be in that category where you have to borrow. Be wise and not a fool when you're handling your wealth. Proverbs 21, 20, there is desirable treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise but a foolish man will squander it. Proverbs 30, verse 24 and 25, and I'm only going to read one of the four things. So, there are four things which are little on the earth, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they prepare their food in the summer. So don't be a fool. Be wise in the way you handle your resources. <clears throat> We're told to plan ahead. Proverbs 28, 19. He who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows frivolity will have poverty enough. And then Proverbs 27, 23 through 27. Be diligent to know the state of your flocks and attend to your herds, for riches are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. When the hay is removed and the tender grass shows itself, and the herbs of the mountain are gathered in, the lambs will provide your clothing, and the goats the price of a field. You shall have enough goat's milk for your food, and the food for your household, and the nourishment of your maidservants. That requires planning. God says plan ahead with respect to our money. <clears throat> then the matter of inheritance. Verse Proverbs 13, verse 22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the wealth of a sinner is stored up for the righteous. 
Proverbs 19, verse 14, houses and riches are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. So um, an inheritance from fathers to children is, is an okay thing. Proverbs 20, verse 21, here's a, the other side. An inheritance gained hastily at the beginning will not be blessed in the end. Everything belongs to God. <clears throat> We've said that already, so I'm just going to read one of the Proverbs. The blessing of the Lord makes one rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. We're to be faithful in the way that we handle our, our resources. Proverbs 28, 20. A faithful man will abound with blessings, but he who hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. I think I'm going to read one more um, group of Proverbs. These are being generous. These are talk about being generous. Proverbs 19, verse 17. He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will pay back what he has given. Proverbs 21, 13. Whoever shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. And then Proverbs 22:16. He who oppresses the poor to increase his riches and he who gives to the rich will surely come to poverty. And then, here's the matter that we can't take it with us. Ecclesiastes 5, 11 through 12, and then verse 15 says, When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. As he came from his mother's womb, naked he shall return, to go as he came, and he shall take nothing from his labor which he may carry away in his hand. <clears throat> what is Solomon saying? We brought nothing into the world and we'll take nothing out of this life. But that's exactly what Jesus says. Don't seek after riches. Seek the ones that will last for eternity in heaven and not the ones on the earth. We have a whole lot more stuff to cover, but we are running out of time. So we are going to have to have a part two sometime in the next couple of years. <coughs> and we'll talk about giving and a number of other principles from the scripture. But kind of to tie it all together, what we have, even just from the scriptures and the time that we've had now, the underlying motive behind the way that we spend our money needs to be right. It needs to be, how can I give more, and how can I give willingly, purposely, generously, cheerfully, and lovingly? Every purchase that I make, every penny that I spend, should be run through a grid which tries to maximize my heavenly reward and not my earthly pleasures. <clears throat> and this goes for every penny that we spend, whether it's a hamburger, whether it's something big. We, we're all tempted in various areas, and each of us has the own, our own little things that we spend money on. It's easy to look at somebody else and say, oh, look at what they're spending money on, but then they look at me and say, gee, look what he's spending his money on. <clears throat> so both the wealthy and the not-so-wealthy have problems with spending. For some, 
It's fast food, little gadgets, buying gifts. For others, it's clothes, accessories. For others, it's tools, guns, boats, cars, houses. For other people, it's books and education. For others, it's investments, stocks, bonds, annuities, IRAs, 401ks. Each time we use our money, we should be thinking, would God approve of this use of our funds? And if I didn't hit on one of your uh, things that you like to spend money on, just substitute in, in there. I think I got a pretty broad range, though. <clears throat> Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Uh, I still remember when we taught this to Michael. <coughs> <clears throat> when he was just a little tiny guy. He was trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. <clears throat> in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your pathway straight. In everything that we do, we need to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. When it comes to our money, we need to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. As you know, Debt in our country is out of control. There's no way we'll be able to pay it back. And the current administration looks like they're going to just really smack that one pretty hard. And so what do we do? Well, there's things we could do about that, but very limited. But what do we do about us? <clears throat> What's worse than our government being in debt is us being in debt. How can we be example to the world if we're in debt? So remember that a debtor is always a slave of the creditor, and we must recognize that we cannot give the way God wants us to give if we're in debt. We must get out of debt and be in a position to be usable by God to further his kingdom. <clears throat> Whatever the problem is, it must be faced head on. If we spent money foolishly, then we must recognize our foolishness confess our sin, and begin to handle our money like a wise person. If you failed in the past, we need to make sure that we figure out how to get out of debt. If we know how, just do it. If we don't know how, then grab someone that can help you, that they can come alongside you and, and show you how to do that. And since we know that God cares about and watches the way we use our money, we had better get about the business of using our money in according to the ways that please him. <clears throat> so the time of giving an account for our stewardship, like the man in the parable that Jesus taught in Matthew, is getting closer and closer. Questions we need to ask ourselves, have I been a good steward of the abilities and gifts that God has given me to make money to use for his glory and the expansion of the gospel? Have I squandered opportunities or have I been lazy and careless with what God has given me? And that goes for time, resources, and money. Have I impacted the people around me with the money God provides? Have I been a wise steward of what God has given me? Have I used my money in a way that's pleasing to my master? John MacArthur, in a book on the parables, says, Those who are not investing in the work of redemption are shirking their duty to be faithful stewards, wasting this passing moment of opportunity and impoverishing themselves 
in eternity. God doesn't reward people for fritting away his resources, to spend money on unnecessary luxuries and status symbols, or even cheap trinkets, trifle, trifles, creature comforts, and worthless time-wasting diversions is to rob oneself of true eternal riches. 1 Timothy chapter 6 says this, and I'll read it and, and we'll be done. <clears throat> now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drowned men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. And then down in verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us all things to enjoy. Listen carefully. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Once we fully grasp the concept that we are a steward of God's possessions, then the question changes from how much do I need to give to how much do I need to keep for myself? And that's a very different question, and it deserves a very different answer. We will answer one day for how much of God's resources we use for ourselves. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you. We thank you that you've given us the opportunity to live in this country where, in general, if you work hard, you're rewarded, just like your word says. Father, help us to be good stewards of the time that you've given us, <clears throat> the abilities and the talents you've given us to make money, to be used for the kingdom. Help us, Father, to gain the eternal perspective to look forward to that deferred gratification, to seek out eternal rewards and not earthly, wasteful pleasures. Help us, Father, to do this. And we thank you and we praise you in your Son and our Lord, Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen.